Good evening, uh, and welcome to RMIT University's Story Hall, though for some of you it's a familiar place. Um, I'm Margaret Gardner, I'm the Vice-Chancellor of RMIT, and I'm actually very pleased to be here um, at this uh, distinguished lecture and to see such a large and enthusiastic group of people um, here to hear it. Let me begin by acknowledging that we meet here on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Let me say that um, of the many things that RMIT, um, a global university of technology and design might do, uh, then certainly um, having the opportunity to present uh, with our colleagues this lecture uh, is one of them. Um, in this our 125th year, we remain committed to all those things that were close to our heart at the beginning and have been transformed to be part of that question about how you might transform the future. And this is uh, clearly preeminently a lecture about how you might transform the future in a particular way. And it's fitting that CJ Lim's lecture, Imagining the Emergent City, is taking place here in Story Hall because this building, um, which was uh, built in 1887 um, as a meeting hall, uh, was obviously built for people to meet when Melbourne itself was a much smaller and more emergent city. Um, and that this building has been imagined and reimagined and remains a central part of meetings and conversations in this wonderful city of ours, Melbourne, uh, is a testament to the enduring nature of the way the fabric of a city might again and again play the same role and yet a different role. Um, at RMIT, as many of you will know and as many of you have contributed to and will uh, in the future, um, we pride ourselves on fostering innovative design in the urban, urban environment. And for those of you who tromped up Swanston Street tonight, you will have seen two of our newest examples of that in the Design Hub and the Swanston Academic Building. Both of them innovative, both of them we feel making a statement which is something that RMIT has been committed to for some decades, making a statement in this, the heart of this world's most livable city, according to the latest index. Um, and they're buildings that are unafraid to make a bold statement, but what is true about that statement is that it is part of our commitment to sustainability, but part of our commitment to the urban fabric. Because both buildings, as this one sought to do, and I think does again, draw from the city but are there to draw the city in as well. And that's what a truly innovative statement in an educational uh, and research institution should do. It shouldn't be building up the walls. It shouldn't be talking to itself inside its walls. It should be speaking through its fabric to the way we're committed to this city, to the way we draw from it and to what we will give back when we draw it in. So CJ Lim, who's delivering this keynote lecture tonight, is certainly himself unafraid of making bold statements. 
uh, about architectural design and he's produced himself award-winning uh, eco-urban planning designs for sustainable cities in China and Korea and a whole range of other projects which will be detailed when he's introduced by um, Professor Richard Blythe, who's the uh, head of our School of Architecture and Design here at RMIT, when he introduces him shortly. But I'd like to take this opportunity to thank RMIT's co-presenters of this evening's public lecture, the ISS Institute and Melbourne Conversations, and to say that I'm really looking forward to a great lecture, um, and it's now my pleasure to introduce and invite to the lectern the CEO of the ISS Institute, Ms Bella Ehrlicht AM. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's indeed a great pleasure to be here and to welcome CJ Lim as a fellow of the ISS Institute. The ISS was established some 20 years ago under Sir James Gobbo with a clear purpose of helping artisans in Australia lift the standard of talent and workforce that we can offer to make us sustainable. To date, we've awarded 240 fellowships for people to go overseas to bring back new skills and ideas to keep us at the cutting edge of industry. Currently, we have on offer 10 fellowships for people who work in the TAFE or the RTO educational systems. We also have the Lord Mayor's Fellowship, which is the first time we've been able to offer such a prestigious fellowship for anybody who works or lives in the city of Melbourne to travel overseas, bring back knowledge and skills that will enhance the quality of life for all people in Melbourne. On the other side of the equation, or the thing that defines us as well, is an occasion such as tonight. We bring in fellows who can share their expertise with us. To this end, we bring in four a year. Two are sponsored by the City of Melbourne and two by the State Government. So we are very proud indeed to bring somebody of the calibre of CJ Lim. Now, it's indeed a pleasure for me to welcome our own renowned and celebrated architect, Dr. Richard Blythe, Professor in Architecture, and I'll have my glasses on for this part, and Head of the School of Architecture and Design at RMIT University. In 2010, he led the establishment of the RMIT University Creative Practice Research PhD Program in Belgium. Richard was a founding director of the architect architecture practice terroir. The work of terroir has been recognised both nationally and internationally. Richard served as chair of the Australian Institute of Architects National Education Committee from 2005 to 2011 and his most important achievement has been in the role leading the development and adaptation of the AIA research policy and associated documents. Richard's academic passion is creative practice and building communities of creative practitioners' research. Prior to taking up his position at RMIT, Richard lectured at the University of Tasmania for 14 years, where he served as deputy head 
of the School of Architecture and was Vice-Chancellor's representative on the Tasmanian Government's Building and Construction Industries Council. Richard has gained a number of prestigious qualifications, including a PhD from RMIT in 2009. During 2000 to 2001, Richard has served as President of the Society of Architectural Historians in Australia and New Zealand. It's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Richard Blythe to the podium. Thank you very much, Bella, Vice-Chancellor, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, and friends. And I can see quite a few of you here tonight. Welcome. And I'd like to join the Vice-Chancellor in thanking our, uh, our co-presenting partners tonight, the ISS Institute and Melbourne Conversations. Uh, it's my pleasure tonight to introduce someone who is a colleague and a friend, uh, and someone who is also incredibly inspiring. And I guess... Uh, the size of the audience here tonight is a really uh, true indicator of just how influential CJ Lim has been. Before I get to that, a couple of uh, housekeeping matters. Uh, the exits are here and over here. Uh, the seatbelt comes undone like this. Can you please turn off your mobile phones? And I did just check mine, it is off. Uh, I need to let you know that the lecture is being recorded tonight and uh, that there will be time for questions af afterwards. So, CJ Lim is a professor and vice dean at the Bartlett University College London and the founding director of the multidisciplinary and international award-winning Studio 8 Architects. His practice encompasses sustainable urban planning, architecture and landscape, focusing on interpretations of social, cultural and environmental programs. CJ has produced award-winning eco-urban planning designs for sustainable cities in China and Korea and spe speculative projects for the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, the Berkshire Medical Heritage Centre UK and the Aga Khan Foundation. His celebrated project, Virtually Venice, was an in uh, an investigation of east-west cities, cultures and identities, commissioned by the British Council UK for the Venice Architecture Biennale in 2004. In 2006, the Royal Academy of Arts London awarded CJ the Grand Architecture Prize, the prestigious, awards, um, the prestigious award with past winners which include Lord Richard Rogers and Lord Norman Foster. CJ's work has been widely exhibited and published. He has lectured internationally and taught in architecture schools all over the world. CJ is a prolific producer of books and his most recent publication, Short Stories, London in Two and a Half Dimensions, explores the important role of storytelling in urban design. And his award-winning book, Smart Cities and Eco-Warriors, focuses on issues of healthy living and food sustainability in 21st century cities. And I'd like to conclude my introduction of CJ to point out that CJ is not just a fly-in international guest speaker. CJ is a, uh, an, an active member of the RMIT community and you will see from what I'm about to tell you that all of his research work is of core interest to the sorts of things that we pursue at RMIT. 
Four years ago, RMIT embarked on taking our PhD program to Europe. It's a PhD program designed for venturous practitioners, practitioners who want to test the boundaries of things. What I can tell you is that CJ is one of our most vibrant and active members of that now quite robust European PhD community. We've just begun building a similar community at our campus in Vietnam, and we hope to build a similarly strong and robust community that has an Asian focus. That will give us three centres, one in Melbourne, one in Vietnam, and one in Europe. And that will be moving shortly to Barcelona. What we're launching uh, next year is a new Masters of Urban Design program for also for practitioners. What we plan to do with that is to offer a master's degree looking at urban design based in those three centres, in Melbourne, in Vietnam and in Barcelona. The Vietnam focus will be on Asian urbanism, the Barcelona focus will be on European urbanism and the history of urbanism, and the Melbourne focus will be on um, sustainable practice. That master's program will be set up as three intensives located in each of those three cities. And we're hoping, well we know that our relationships with people like CJ have been very important in forming our plans around exactly how to structure that. And we're looking forward to having uh, his participation in those programs as well. Uh, we have available tonight expressions of interest forms for anyone who would like to know a little more about that Masters of Urban Design and they will be available afterwards. What I will also tell you a little more about in, uh, in question time is an opportunity to, for those who are keen to do some work with CJ. There are a series of short course charrette programs coming up and I'll tell you a little bit about how to find that information afterwards. But for the time being, can I welcome uh, CJ Lim to tell us a little more about his practice and his investigations into urban forms. CJ Lim. I'm not CJ Lim, I'm JG Ballard. <laughs> Sorry, this slide shouldn't be on. How do you get rid of this? <laughs> I think my key research interests of recent years would be about cities and especially imagining what cities could be, should be. And a lot of the inspiration um, and energy has been drawn from, I guess, fiction and science fiction. Um, I'm quoting Ballard here. He said, it's the psychological realm where science fiction is most valuable in its predictive function and puts the emotions into the future. I find that a very powerful statement, and I've always prescribed to that. Utopian visions in science fiction have often predicted the future and identified new forms of sustainability. As much as representing a past, 
that was never possible. I guess science fiction, for me, is less about the science and more about the future. Um, it's, I'm not interested in the Star Trek or the Doctor Who, but I'm interested in the ideas of future living. I guess others have also been inspired by science fiction writing. Um, the planner Ebenezer Howard in his Garden Cities, he was very much inspired by this book here, Looking Back. And at that time, the book was incredibly popular. Um, and Bellamy actually um, stated, put forward an idea of political mass movement and communities adopting these utopian ideals. And so when Letchworth Garden City and Welland Garden City in the UK came about, this idea of uh, integration of housing, agriculture, history, um, to create this utopian uh, reality was very much um, put together through the inspiration of the novel. I guess tonight's lecture would be in, sort of in two chapters. Um, one is that it's in, it would be drawn from my latest book, short stories, London in two, two and a Half Dimensions, and the other one would be from uh, my previous book, uh, which was published two years ago now, uh, Smart Cities and Eco Warriors. Uh, I guess one with short stories, it was very much about reimagining what our existing city could be. And smart cities would very much be about the future. I think for me, the city could be a revisit of the Garden of Eden. And if the Garden of Eden had everything that we require, um, why can't we have the same? We spend a lot of energy in actually um, transporting food. Um, I guess it's, it's less applicable to Australia, but much more to Europe. Um, my interest is also in beyond food sustainability, it's about food security and food safety. This is a picture where food in the UK would come from. So we would import lamb from New Zealand. Uh, we have fairly good lamb in Wales, but we still import lamb from New Zealand. We import most of the vegetables from North Africa, green beans, vegetable art, which I absolutely love, comes from Kenya. So if you can imagine the food miles and how unsustainable and how much carbon there is on a plate of food, that's problematic. So for me, food conversations that goes beyond nutrition is a very important part of my research and application of uh, future cities. Uh, I'm slightly weary of using the word sustainable because um, according to uh, many, you know, when in doubt, use the word sustainable, you'll get out of the, a little, your corner. So I'm really quite careful of using that word. Um, 
I've asked students and others to define what sustainable means, and everybody has a very different take on it. I'm interested in empowering communities that produce food. Uh, with most new cities, land, farmland, very fertile farmland, has been taken away, and communities like this has been disenchanted and actually been swept aside with no security whatsoever, and then this fertile land will be where the new city grows. So bringing urban farming back into the city uh, is not such far-fetched. Bringing food security back into the city is not so far-fetched. Um, after the last war, um, this is an image outside the Reichstag in Berlin, where they grew uh, vegetables to potatoes. We did the same in High Park in London. It was a potato field for a long time on the rooftops of New York schools. And a bomb hole in London itself was actually a very convenient allotment for many. I want to build cities not out of steel, concrete, wood, or anything modern and high-tech. I want to build my cities and cities for everyone out of edible materials, vegetables, flowers, fruits, edible grass, and so forth, and material that would change with season and has flavoring and smell and wonderful texture and colors at the same time. This is an example where we actually uh, overlaid an inhabitable infrastructure over a fertile farming land, not to disturb it, so it floats over it. This is an example of how we sort of engage with this edible material, what I call. If you can see here, the four-pier long structure would be the insertion for a program of 250,000 people, and the farmland is kept intact as a canvas. Pascal, can I tell everybody the joke? Not joke. I'm going to embarrass you now. <laughs> By the way, I'm here with my three most trusted research assistants from London, uh, Pascal Broner, Martin Tang, Steve McCloy. They're all sitting here, and they're part of the, the, the research uh, team here at RMIT. So we are very fortunate to, to be hosted by RMIT here. Pascal worked on this model here, and if you, for those who are interested in model making, um, you might notice that the base is, of it is knitted. Pascal knitted for two weeks, and he went absolutely mental afterwards. Um, and it was a huge double AO model. So this is a view from the, the man-made infrastructure. I'm also interested in network, local networks, where we could create a system that serves each other. This is a, a master plan for Newark in America, where they have a lot of empty allotments, empty sites, where currently they would use it for criminal activities of so selling drugs, prostitution, and all sorts of dumping grounds. So part of the plan was to actually engage with the city and say, you know, what if you lease these lots out 
for short term, for short periods of time, at, for community urban agriculture. So what they did was that not only did they produce um, food, but it was a vehicle for social cohesion, for community pride. So that idea of network, local network, we extended it to a much more international global one. What if we have the same system but much larger? We use our, our sort of city squares and make that the center for nutritional knowledge and food knowledge. So here we're taking the diagram here says there will be Trafalgar Square and Tenement Square and all squares around capital cities where they become the site for the in infrastructure to distribute and disseminate food and nutritional information. And a place where people can come for engaging in urban production, urban food production. This is an example in Trafalgar Square in London where you get these vertical sort of beacons of a nursery. Uh, and the, nurse, the, the little baby plants would then be distributed back into the suburbs. But within this, there has a whole host of sort of intelligence system that would actually be able to educate and exchange information. I think I mentioned civic pride uh, a little bit earlier on. I think we also use urban agriculture as a vehicle to cultivate civic pride and social cohesion. Here is a project we did for the Shunde government in South China where we looked into the embankment uh, of the Pearl River. The Pearl River is a very, very busy river in, in China. It would have a lot of tankers that would go up and down the Pearl River and out to the rest of the world. Currently, it's, it's completely clogged up with oil spills uh, and it's also a local dumping ground. If you fancy a, uh, to find recyclable sort of materials like half a sofa, a bag of rubbish, dead chickens, that's the place to go to. So here, the idea was very much to say, okay, it's not about as feeding. It is about keeping the embankment clean. It's about keeping, bringing back ecologies that used to exist once upon a time. And when it floods, it will rejuvenate itself very much like the Nile before they built the dam. And by doing so, possibly it would bring back the ecologies that once existed there, rather than being just the dumping ground and being a very unhealthy aspect for the city. If you can imagine, if the river is contaminated and runs through your city, it could be a health hazard. As I say, I'm most interested in bringing uh, the countryside to the urban and possibly the other way around too. I call these prop propositions smart cities and it's very much about establishing an ecological symbiosis between nature and built form. Uh, I think nature has been much been sidelined and neglected by civilization. According to United Nations, these are figures um, I think it probably have changed even recently. Food production has fallen. 
And in just in the last two weeks, there's been reports that due to severe clim climate change and severe weather condition, many, many place countries that produce grain have suffered from that. And hence, grain prices have really soared. It probably doesn't matter to any of us sitting in this room. We wouldn't probably notice it. But for quite a big proportion of the world, it would be quite detrimental to what they can afford to eat. A proposal we did for Penang. Um, I was born in Malaysia. Uh, I lived there for the first 15, year of my, 15 years of my life before I went to England. So this was my first and only project, ironically, in Malaysia. Uh, so it was a proposition for housing. Um, and within this microclimatic skin that we created uh, for passive cooling, we would also have um, urban agriculture on it. So the planting would also stop um, the building absorbing heat and heating itself up. I think the first um, exercise for us, research exercise, was the first, first time was this project. Uh, I guess a lot of the ideas still are applicable to many of the master planning projects that we currently do. It was a project in Guangming in South China. Uh, it's very close, it's in Shenzhen. Uh, for those who are not aware of where Shenzhen is, if you were to look at your shoes or your clothes or your t-shirt or your jackets, if it says made in China, the likelihood that it would come from that region. And you can imagine the kind of the smog, the pollution that is in the sky from um, the industry of this area. So that sets the kind of context of what we were operating within. And it was supposed to be the second eco-city for China after Dongtan in Shanghai. Um, the proposal um, actually came through uh, the great Japanese architect, Arata Izaki, whom we are incredibly grateful to, uh, because since then we have been able to work on many, many more since um, master planning in China and of the region. As you can see here, the master plan is very much augmented by nature and, and all the greens indicate different types of vegetation and planting. So rather than putting humans first, we were much more interested in saying how could we cultivate this productive landscape that then happens to have housing within. So nature came first and humans came next. I know it sounds quite bizarre, uh, but that's how we worked. And each of the hubs would have this sort of sandwich system, interleaving system, terraces from vegetation, then it would come down to housing, vegetation, housing. And what we did, we almost did everything in reverse, just like the way that we conceive um, the city through vegetation and then housing. Um, here, the city square do not exist on the ground, but in the sky. 
So it's a reverse system. And the hub itself would also be a renewable energy source uh, where hot air will be pumped in into the, those hums and then cool down and then pump back into the housing units. So the landscape has a very, very specific uh, function. So the form didn't just arrive uh, for, because I fancy terraces. Um, it actually has um, a very specific scientific uh, mode of operation. And we work very closely with Fulcrum, uh, a great environmental engineering firm that we are, will be eternally grateful for because they actually have taught us a great, great deal. And I truly, truly believe in multidisciplinary working. Um, over the last few years now, we have really been very active collaborating with different disciplines for our practice, but also in my research at UCL. Uh, recent, in June, a paper that I collaborated and participated uh, in for, it was for the Lancet Science Journal, and uh, it's called Healthy Cities. And I had a, a very small role in it. So, but it was absolutely amazing uh, to learn from other colleagues and uh, experts how we can work together to create a much more um, ecological and much uh, safer city and environment for the future. I did learn a lot about writing for science journals, I have to say. I was told categorically that my writing was, not, was only suitable for the Sunday supplement of the newspaper. And one, I should really change the, the way that I write because it's the Lancet paper. So I did learn a great deal. I guess this is a very important image in the, in, in the mix of things because we really try very hard to empower the farming community. Because the thing is that, if you think about it, it just doesn't make sense that you built a city for 300,000 people. Yeah? There's no notion of where food would come from. There's a lot of you know, interest in renewable energies from the sun and the wind and the water and everything, but nothing about food. How are you going to feed them? You can obviously truck them down you know, another, across different regions of China. Uh, but why can't we have the farming community, those who produce food, within this kind of urban equation of, uh, I'm going to use the bad word now, sustainability. This is, um, the Guangming project was nine kilometers square, and I swear, to you, I, prom I thought it was the largest scheme that I will ever do in my career. And I think when me and the team did it, it was quite a task. And of recent days and months, we, we worked on this one uh, in Guangzhou. It's an ecological, ecological park that introduces uh, nature back into the city, in the city of Guangzhou, uh, again, South China. Um, for those who probably know, uh, Zaha Hadid's Opera House is just north from the, the little red point there. Uh, and this is quite a clever uh, move from the government. They wanted to keep the existing orchards, bring in 
different kinds of ecology, but keep this and make it into the largest piece of urban green in, in any city in the world. And it takes a lot of doing and courage. I guess I'm, this is my next chapter of this lecture, right? and taken from short stories. As I said, if I've shown you the future uh, of what could be, this is the moment where, this is where how one could reimagine an existing city, an existing city that has a lot of heritage, history, tradition, and a very complex series of cultures like London. And I would like to think that in such a research project, the drawing and the text becomes an essential part of reimagining and recreating uh, the wonderful city. Uh, this is our model of London. Uh, yes, it is the model of London. And it is in the form of the Victorian sponge cake. And yes, we did not take any substance while we were doing the project. We were very, very conscious what we were doing. Um, I will explain in a moment. I think drawings, for me, is a very important tool. It's a very important method in the sort of culture of research and the exercise of researching. Um, it doesn't matter if it's drawn by hand or through uh, the computer or other means. It's a way of communicating. It's a way of editing one's sort of random series of sort of floating ideas in the head. Um, these drawings here, I'm not showing it to you with any great pride here, these few drawings. It's, I just want to show you that these are very conventional orthogonal drawings that we call plans, and these ones are what we call section. They are very good in the business of construction and conveying construction information between architects, between architects and the builder, uh, between even clients sometimes. But the thing is that it does not have any qualitative, qualitative or phenomenological intelligence for me. It doesn't have what Ballard would coin emotions. Here, these, I wish they are my drawings, but they're not. Uh, the image on the right-hand side here is from the great American architect, Levis Woods. Here, this is the moment that he describes the architect as a storyteller. And this is the moment when he said that there are ideas and feelings that can only be expressed in drawn form. I mean, that's a wonderful, wonderful drawing. Uh, by the way, that's an image from the film 12 Monkeys, the Brad Pitt picture. Um, I think they, they were highly inspired by Lebius, and Lebius got paid lots and lots of money for it. Um, I'm not going to go into details because I could get into trouble for that. Uh, anyway, so here, Lebius is one of those who really champion the, the kind of importance of what a drawing could do in, and what a drawing could contribute to the idea of making an environment, let alone a building. Let's forget about the building, but let's talk about the environment. 
And so this is Roland Barthes. In his book, The Introduction of Structural Analysis of Narratives, he said, narrative is present in every age, in every place, in every society. It begins with the very history of mankind, and there nowhere has been people without narrative. Caring nothing for the division between good and bad literature, narrative is international, transhistorical, transcultural. It's simply like life itself. If narrative is like life itself, doesn't that make it a great tool for us designers to really use it to envision what our environment, our lives, our living could be? We are no stranger from using narratives to structure a program or to make uh, architectural provocations, I guess. Uh, this was a project done uh, probably late 1990s, um, inspired by The Seven Deadly Sins and the film Seven, another Brad Pitt picture. I have to declare, I'm not a fan of Brad Pitt, so... But here, we looked into the whole construct of what a city could be if it's a city that is based on sins. And I guess you and I know, as much goodness we want to design into our cities, there's always a lot of evil. So gluttony was one of them. Uh, I think at this point, we had in England what you call the mad cow's disease, and mad cow's disease uh, was when, you know, going back to my conversation about food security and safety, this is when we feed the animals bad things and the animals will get sick and the sick animal will then be fed to human beings and then humans will get sick. So here, it's a satire of really how we should treat farm animals and how we should go to this extreme of building a penthouse the cow would live on the top of the white structure, be fed the freshest grass um, that is growing on a conveyor belt, and then little does he or she know that at some point it would, he, would be, he or she would be served up downstairs. This is his penthouse. He would be served up downstairs at the table of Last Supper. I think with my interest in narratives, in structuring architectural projects, one could not resist sort of using and borrowing, I would like to say, borrowing uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. I guess in some ways I exist in a little wonderland of myself uh, I could be accused of. But this was a moment when we, we were invited to do this competition and uh, for a cultural center and library in Sittingbourne. And I bet, don't worry if you do not know anything about Sittingbourne. It is not worth worrying about because it's not worth visiting, even if you come to England. I have been to many, many places around the world and I lived my first 15 years in a tiny, tiny little village in Malaysia. So the things that, you know, Sittingbourne was, you know, if Melbourne is up here, my village where I come from Malaysia is here, Sittingbourne goes through this floorboard. 
that was how exciting it was. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to get a letter from the British Tourist Board very soon for this. And I was bored stiffless, and I just thought, why bother even having a cultural center? Because there was absolutely no culture there. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes I've been driven out to your wonderful countryside where it says population, human one, cow, 20,000. There in Sittingbourne, it was like, you know, 10 human beings, and that was it. And so I was really bored, and, and I really felt like the protagonist in the Carol's book, you know, that I, was, I felt like Alice. I just thought, you know, what if we turn the whole piece of literature into the program itself? So instead of actually respecting this kind of guideline, design guideline they gave out, so we took the entire piece of literature and turned it into various parts of the project. Um, from having, playing with different scales, different material, what is virtual and what is real. So that was quite fun to do. Of course, we didn't get anywhere with it, and we probably would not be asked again since I've criticized Sitting One so many times. There are other moments also where my passion for film, uh, especially sort of film from the 30s and 40s of Hollywood black and white movies come in. Um, this is a moment where I think I'm going to be adapting, like, you know, filmmakers would adapt a screenplay. We would, here, this is where we adapted the writings of the great American architect John Hader. The black text on there is by him, and the red text uh, is ours. And so, by adapting this, we actually had great fun looking into the way that we can use this method to structure an architectural program. And the project was uh, a, an homage to John Haydock himself. And here, I'm not going to go into detail, but I can just tell you that uh, in Haydock's text, there was a little boy with jelly beans. And here, the jelly has become this incredibly uh, fluctuating landscape of jelly that changes Depending on the temperature, it would go squidgy, jump, uh, you know, like a piece of rubber to liquid, sticky liquid. So that was that. At this point, I should say I'm Jules Verne. I'm not Jules Verne. I really wish I can write like all these great writers. I mean, that would be what I, I think I should come back as my next life. <laughs> Jules Verne, he's truly a hero of mine because he speculates. And, you know, he thought about going down into the ocean, objects flying in the sky way before the technology was available. And he, that is really, really important. And in some ways, I... I believe that us designers, all of us who are in the business of engaging, it doesn't matter even if you're not a designer, any of us who are engaging in, in the business of future should really, really think like Jules. He was absolutely amazing. He was really ahead of his time. And so here we took his literature around the world in 80 days and actually 
um, was the inspiration for this landmark. It was a competition for the Paris bid of the Paris Olympic 2012. And the inspiration here was that uh, these were paper mache floating uh, objects that would then create these vast shadow landscape on the ground itself when it floated over. And little did I know that when 2012 came, something else, I'll tell you, I think you've seen it. We actually did do a landmark for London uh, in South Kensington. So when we did this, I don't know how many years ago now, we have no idea that we actually, despite not winning the Paris one and Paris not winning the, the Olympic for 2012, uh, and London winning it gave us a chance to build an installation in the city. Uh, this is a moment that um, I want you to take note that the following drawings that you see, or at least a majority of them, were not drawn by pencil or CAD or uh, painted with watercolor. It was actually crocheted using tiny, tiny pieces of paper. Um, and you can see how small they are. They were so small that you can hold them with your fingers, uh, and we had to use tweezers to stitch them together. Uh, I did not coin the phrase um, crocheting drawings. It was um, a journalist from a broadsheet in England, in London, who came by to our office at the time of the Biennale in 2004 when we were doing that. And he was totally amazed and astonished and probably a little bit disappointed that we were not carrying away, that we were crocheting drawings like little old ladies in Venice that would crochet uh, sort of knitwear and things like that. I'm interested in culture, in how it would structure cities. Uh, here, this is a, obviously a fantastical one. It was inspired by Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. Um, in history and most written literature, the, the interpretation, what is seen, is always soon, uh, seen through the eyes of Marco Polo, the Western eye. And I was absolutely determined that for our exhibition, it should be seen through the Eastern eye of how Venice could reconfigure itself. Because in the novel, for those who have read the novel, um, Marco Polo used it as a vehicle, as a, as a device to trick the, the Mongolian emperor from executing him. So he was a great liar. He'd never been to many cities, but he, what he did was he actually made up little aspects of Venice and turned them into this series of fantastical cities. So in our scenario of things, we also created... Um, seven, I can't remember, seven or eight situations where they became key parts of cities. Here, uh, San Marco, uh, the plaza of energy and life and everything where pigeons would flock around in, in, in great crowds. Um, we turned it 90 degrees and made it into the Tower of Death. Um, I guess it was also an homage to the film Death in Venice, uh, where the cladding of the tower would be these pigeon traps, and pigeons would be trapped, hung, and consumed with pleasure. 
So I guess it's... Oh, God. Do you have lots of vegetarians in the auditorium? <laughs> this is not an architecture for vegetarians at all. And in the model of things, so for us, even our models have to tell very specific, precise stories. So rather than telling everything, we were, I think, again, Pascal made this model. Um, it was very clear that the cladding indicated, the cladding is supposed to go throughout the whole structure, but only the bits that had fatality incurred would show up as red. And we also, because the building engaged in cooking, um, we also used, we actually started burning the drawings. Can you see the little brown patches? And it, it took a couple of tries, actually. Um, it's a little bit tricky to burn drawings. Uh, I would highly recommend it, and you should try it at home, not at RMIT. Another one was the, this great washing machine that would glide through the lagoon. And within this, you can actually have little antennas hooked to your window, your palazzo, little gardens, for the duration of your laundry drying. So here in this drawing, we, this, the largest part of the, the vessel is right up the top corner, whereas the antennae, the garden, was very much the protagonist in this picture, uh, having a relationship with the openings of the palazzo. So the drawing becomes a very important tool to express key ideas. So the things that I always find that, you know, just doing the art plan and section and this random, rendered perspective, it just doesn't do, do the trick. The Giardini, 29 different international pavilions, uh, and this is a place where these empty vessels, empty buildings, will be filled up by wonders from every country. And here, the, the construct was a lemon orchard that would produce um, lemon juice, where one could then be encouraged to graffiti with lemon juice. And on every New Year's Eve, the graffiti wall will be set alight and the secret messages will be revealed. This is, as I said, you know, short stories. I'm, I think, in, as I said, in my next life, I like to write screenplay or write novels or some kind. So I think when I did short stories with my amazing, esteemed colleagues, um, it was a moment of, you know, it was almost an, a cathartic exercise. And I even treat some of my master planning projects, I wouldn't tell my clients or in China, obviously, or the Chinese government, but sometimes they are cathartic exercises of telling stories of cities too. I'm, I've, I've sort of grown up with these novels from Elroy, Chandler, Kane. They were absolutely amazing storytellers. But the city always plays the protagonist. The city in, in question would be Los Angeles. When Peter Aykroyd wrote London, he wrote London as if it's a living being that has its own life and rules. 
and, and not as a backdrop, a canvas for other things to happen. So when um, we made the projects for short stories, we were very keen to actually create a city on the brink of strangely familiar, and this is the bit I cannot pronounce, familiarly strange. And the thing is that, that to me, that ambiguity is what fascinates me about space, cities, um, and the built environment. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for this amazing image from Primrose Hill. Dream Isle. Dream Isle, the, the city of London. The map of London. The model of London. I guess when we made this model, or did the, with the project of Dream Isle, it started off as a commission by the great Japanese architect, Toyo Ito, uh, for a, a sort of a traveling exhibition. And we were very keen to, in a way, inverted brackets, sell English culture. English culture, especially the, the Victorian age, is something that I'm very much interested in. Uh, and so I wanted a vehicle that would take all the complexities of any cities, a city like London especially, that could take it and yet has a slice of very, of Englishness, I guess. And I guess at this time, my passion and my obsession of making cakes came in. I went through a phase of making cakes every weekend. I don't know if it was through depression or was through interest or gluttony, but it was great. And that was the time when we did this project. So I always think that whatever I was interested in at that time always comes into the project. Thank God for the Chinese government that it, it wasn't manifested into one of their eco-cities. Otherwise, they could get a Victorian sponge cake. I wanted a Victorian sponge cake because it has this complexity of making. And it represents, sort of represents the complexity and diversity and the layering of uh, a, a complex city like London. So, this is a moment um, that I'm going to do a bit of reading. I'm going to pretend that I'm in one of your great bookstores in Melbourne. I've always pretended in, in, in London, in England, we have uh, Waterstones. And I always wanted to, to go and do a book reading. You know, like those great authors, they're going to do a little book reading in the afternoon. So this is my moment of indulgence. This is St. Paul's, the Whispering Gallery in St. Paul's. London resonates within colossal teacups embedded in the island's spongy earth, the sponge cake. The saturation is composed from an amalgamate of tongues drawn on words from one dialect that make no sense in another. If a listener spoke every language, from, perhaps the secrets of the city would be revealed. So these teacups are seen as speakers and amplifiers for the city. The changing of the guards, Buckingham Palace. The monarch and the royal palaces have been protected by the household troops since 1660, 
and the changing of the guard still take place at Buckingham Palace at half past 11 in the morning. When the Queen is in residence, there are four sentries. When she's away, there are two. The soldiers are drawn from one of five regiments of foot guards in the British Army. Yes, and those are geese wearing furry little hats. The British Museum and Wimbledon. At this particular moment, the Dream Isle, the British of, of the Dream Isle, the British Museum and the grass courts of Wimbledon have fused into a hybrid entity coming into being through the aid of tidings of magpies. Magpies are birds that like to steal shiny little things. As grey clouds threaten, a thousand black and feather stewards <coughs> tether to the perimeter of the folded grass tarpaulin take flight and open out a canopy to protect the hordes of artifacts and treasures they have accumulated since 1753. And I always said that, you know, if the Brits didn't steal everything from every single country and nation, they would have nothing in the British Museum. I shouldn't have said that. It wasn't very patriotic, was it? And this is the moment where my cake baking, cookie cutting thing comes in. This is when the moment I will see uh, Trafalgar Square, the fountains of Trafalgar Square as cookie cutter. And Primrose Hill as the eye for the city. Primrose Hill manifests itself on the Isle as a roving telescopic contraption mounted on the airfield Victorian sponge. Watched through the kaleidoscope lens, the owl takes the form of the giant petri dish, its components jockeying like bacteria cultures for dominance, continuously shifting scale and morphing into one another. Buckingham Palace. The fenestration of palace appears on the dream owl as colossal proscenium arches, or perhaps the Laris of London is miniaturized. The arches are not windows onto the wall, but windows onto the palace, where royal family, the royal family, unwittingly or otherwise, staged the world's favorite soap opera and the original reality TV show. And then he goes on. I'm not going to bore you. Uh, then it would, you know, you have to speak about tea, and then the British World Service and the Beatles and, and so forth. And this is a section of our London. and the components that makes up this cake. There will be a series of chapters I'll go through. Um, the snaky thing is the River Thames, and the thing that looks like a duck, the shape that looks like a duck, that's the central line. I'll tell you about the central line in a moment. But the first chapter, the time of the city, the clock of London is Queen Mary's Garden. Queen Mary's Garden is in the center of London in Regent's Park. You can actually smell uh, Queen Mary's Garden before you even get there because of this, this abundance of very beautiful and um, luscious roses. And it was absolutely amazing. And I very, very much enjoy making space out of the intangible rather than the tangible. And here, she does look grumpy. Uh, it's the bunny club. 
and they become the guardian of the, 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 this clock for the city. And these are, instead of rose bushes, they have manifested into these pavilions of smells. And the bunny themselves um, are not humans, but androids. And the piece of landscape is very much one of, if you were to open up your, your, your watch now, you would see the landscape on your wrist. So you have the city on your wrist. The discontinuous city. This is a place, the, the columns, you can see the black dots on black friars. Uh, it was a burned down piece of structure. And here, what we have created is to bring the beach into central London. It was to, con to actually join up uh, two pieces of London. You have North London and South London, and it's always divide. Uh, it's different in many, many ways. Uh, like the Frost Fair here, the idea was to freeze the Thames and then stitch the two cities together, two parts of the city. And the paraphernalia of the architecture would be very much inspired by beach architecture. And you can actually turn your cabin upside down and make it into a bathtub and dip it into the water. We talk about familiar and unfamiliar things. Uh, this is a rail image. Uh, no, it's not a rail polar bear, and neither is it a rail iceberg, but it was actually in the Thames. I'm interested in this juxtaposition of rail, but I'm interested also, it was the inspiration for this vessel that would go up and down the Thames to collect stories of the city. It would become the archive of the city, and the keeper would be the monkeys, our dearest cousins. Um, I think there are many, many great things about the city of London. I, I, have, I certainly have benefited from it in many, many ways. But there are things that shock me from time to time. We're in the 21st century. And there are many, many of these gentlemen's clubs on Pall Mall that only allow men in there still. At, even today, I find it slightly shocking. So the next project, um, Madame Delia's Suburban Ruse, was an, in a way a spoof about uh, these institutions, these organizations, these places where women are not allowed. And the most famous one of them all is the Reform Club in London. And this is our Reform Club uh, made of a suitcase. The suitcase penetrated by these windows, and on the windowsills will have female chickens, hens, cooing and laying eggs. And everything within this building would be female, only the ones and the male would be spoiled and pampered. And I guess as it says here, it will become this ruse highlights the redundant element of male sex. Because the thing is that, you know, if male were treated and serve hand and foot, over time, like dinosaurs, we become probably redundant completely. 
So, ladies, tonight you better tell your partners or boyfriends to do the washing up, because CJ said otherwise they will become dinosaurs. Um, not far from that is this triangulated space in Battersea. It's Battersea.com. I think the project is a reflection of how we live in cities. Uh, I've lived in my building for a long, long time, over 15 years, and I promise you, I have no idea who the person is next door who lives next to me. So the things that, you know, in a way, it's about searching for companionship and about knowing one's neighbors, I guess. And here, this is a project that looked into Battersea.com as a dating agency. Yeah, you, you see, you have a good sense of humor. And this is where, you know, we would find our soulmate, uh, one that would be loyal and cuddly with us all the time. And it's a piece of structure, a billboard where these dogs would actually perform races to sustain the, the, the center, but also a place where you would go, there would be a poochie parlor and so forth, where you can actually go and have your date with the dog. I think it's also a message for those, you know, of how we should treat our animals, like the Gluttony Project or this one here. You know, you can't just have a dog for Christmas. Um, the next one here is the Nocturnal Tower, where the long building on top is Smithfield Market. Smithfield Market is a meat market distribution center for London. And it used to be like that before the, the wretched EU uh, insisted that everything has to be glassed up and be sanitized and so forth. It was absolutely an amazing space. I love Smithfield Market, not because of its architecture, the physical architecture. I love it because of its tectonic environment. You can actually smell the architecture of death and... Uh, yeah, go on, you can giggle. It's true. You can actually, like the rose gardens in, in Queen Mary's Garden, you can smell the architecture of this place before you even get close up to it. And I find that absolutely, this sort of uh, condition really, really important because the things that we are more and more we are offered up spaces in architecture and public spaces that are so sanitized that it could be anywhere or anything that has no uh, real bearing on the on what it's supposed to be. And the inspiration came from the three little pigs. I need to mention that I'm never proud of where our inspiration comes from. So anything goes. So little kids, beware. I would be grabbing all the little the books from you. So, and what we did was we constructed three towers. The tower for the uh, night porters to sleep in and also for smoking of bacon in there. And could you guys tell me what the material would be? Go and shout out. Yep. It must be in the right order. Straw, then stick, and bricks. So here, with these three materials, we constructed these sort of uh, two and a half dimension drawings. They're not models, but they're not flat either. So 
Um, there are pseudo sort of recipe books. And the garden of, at the bottom of it would be an, a mechanical apple orchard that would actually uh, secrete these smells of apple, creating an, a virtual garden. And the carcasses from time to time would actually, the shadow of it would embrace the long horizontal building, which is just across the road from it. Here, a project in the heart of Soho, a Soho where the Italian community and the Chinese community uh, exist or used to exist in in the West End. Uh, this is a courtyard, um, and it was, the project is called the Baker's Garden. For me, when I first arrived um, in London, most of Soho was very much like this. You can actually smell uh, what happens there. You can smell before, you can actually smell the cheeses that come out from the Italian delis, and you can smell bakeries pastries and bread being uh, baked. But now, what you can smell is usually the sick from Friday night and Saturday night, when people throw up violently on the streets. So it's very much changed. And I guess, you know, here I'm very much interested in how the intangible material, like smell, light, and heat, would actually create the garden. So if you imagine this is being a section, um, the ground would have the bread baking. So in wintry condition, the ground would be heated up and the smell of bread would actually rise up from the ground. And in sort of dark winter's night, you really don't need much, but you can feel the heat from the ground and the smell sort of cuddling you. And, and then, you know, and every so often when the oven is open up, because it's wood iron, a wood uh, oven, you keep little chinks of light coming through. And that, to me, is absolutely fabulous. So there you go, my romance for traditional baking. Uh, and here, I, would, I was also interested in making architecture that is not perfect, that doesn't work all the time. We are absolutely obsessed with everything perfectly, sort of, you know, buildings to work like a Swiss watch, but buildings don't. And here, we're really much interested in when the, the, the machine that actually distributes the flour stops. The flour will spill across the balcony, and for that moment, from the height of 15 meters, there will be this sprinkling of white little dots to describe the volume of the space for one split second. So I'm also interested in architecture and space making that has only available for experience for one split second. So architecture is not forever. I think generally architects in general have great egos. They want their buildings to be their shrines. So I'd, my ego is much smaller. Um, I think this is also a celebration of uh, immigrants that actually arrive in London. Um, the Chinese didn't arrive in Chinatown, they arrived in the East End. So it was an opportunity here where I could also bring my childhood sort of 
um, interests and fantasies into play. Uh, I couldn't resist, you know, bringing sort of, you know, I grew up with flying swordsmen and dragons that glide across the sky. So here, when we came to reimagining the very slow and very pathetic circle line, um, I thought, why not, you know, we can have dragon boats that glide across our skies. And this is a moment where the whole infrastructure is elevated, and it would be a way, a sustainable way of commuting to work and provide the much-needed exercise for fat cats. So this is the moment where a dragon boats would fly across the sky, and you would row it across. At that height, your perspective of the city, the way you view the city, would be very, very different. It would no longer be from the ground, but it would be, you know, your, your, your immediate sort of view would be of billboards, eaves, gutters, and rooftops. And every so often, you will be, you would actually experience a piece of life of the city. Cities are not, you know, great cities are not about so much about the infrastructure or the buildings. They are about the activities that goes on, you know, within the buildings, outside the building, next to the building, on the buildings. And these are things, just like Hitchcock's film, you know, when you observe the city, one should observe the life within it. And for me, the, 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 this new transport system, when it's elevated, it would allow the city, in a way, for the observer to, to see what a living city could be. So you'll be peering through windows and observing lives and beyond. So that's good. These are the last couple of slides now, so don't worry, we'll get the drink soon. Um, I just want to show you a little kind of preview of what we've been doing uh, in the last week um, in Building 45. Is it Building 45? Yeah, and if any of you are interested, please come down and, and just poke your head through, and then I will very welcome conversation with any of you. Uh, this is what we're doing um, on the windows of Building 45. Uh, we're actually making a new city. So uh, I hope it doesn't constitute vandalism, but we will make sure that it's a beautiful drawing. So this is just a snippet of how we are making city in Building 45. I would like to leave you with this. I think this is, he is a pretty smart chap. He said, logic will get you from A to B. Imagination will take you everywhere. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, some time for questions and some opportunity for questions. The uh, Venetian mariners, the navigators, used to have a technique of marking on the edge of their maps two lions' heads. And the two lions' heads mark the end of the known world. And what I love about characters like CJ is that their investigations aren't like the investigations of science trying to understand better what we the here and now. 
Their endeavours are about trying to imagine something which is not yet here, to see beyond the lion's heads. And the techniques and practices that they employ are all vastly different. And it's been a wonderful insight tonight to see into exactly how Studio 8, these guys and CJ, have done that over a considerable period of time. But perhaps uh, people have some questions that they would like to ask while they have CJ here. We have some roving microphones for the purpose. But if you would like to ask a question, raise your hand high so I can see this. I'm trying to scan up and down at the same time. There's one question over here. Hello. Hi. I've, uh, I've got a bit of a, a cheeky question because uh, a few of us uh, in the Landscape Project uh, program are actually uh, have an assignment at the moment looking into your practice. Um, so uh, I was, I was uh, seeing if I could get the upper hand here and ask you uh, what you think the role of um, uh, maybe sensation and the relationship of sensation and image is to the, the work that you do. Or, or one of the other if it's uh, too, too far away from your topic. relation of sensation and image. I, I, I don't know much about sensation, but I definitely know a lot about image making. Um, I think, as I said earlier on, the image from the drawing or the model is a very important tool to communicate any ideas. And there are various communicative tools for different purposes. And for me, it has to be clear, but it also has to communicate the poetics of space and living and life. Um, and for me, for somebody who deals with culture as, and urbanism, which is quite different, uh, and large-scale work, it's sometimes really difficult to strike a balance of the, the technique or, or the modes of representation. And, and then suddenly when you realize, you know, like for example, when we d just recently completed the, the installation for the Olympics outside South Ken, I think you saw a picture of it. Um, we were, you know, we were slightly surprised that from the drawing, the sensation or the quality of the drawing uh, became this massive thing that we thought was much smaller. So the sensation was when you really experience the build uh, at that moment. And for me, that's, that moment was shock. It was not what I envisaged, the scale at least. So any other questions? You can ask me anything. the role of the drawing and the representation that you choose to use to show these projects, um, is it very much a, a sort of reflexive and feedback thing where you work from that drawing back into the idea behind the project and, and repeat that process? Yeah, I mean, that? we go through this exercise all the time. I mean, we draw and we draw over and over and over again. I think for us, our practice uh, hardly built. Although we, we're working on lots of commissions from uh, the 
Chinese government and the Korean government and so forth. But the thing is that there are still big master plan projects. And so, you know, we have yet to realize the entire sort of nine kilometers square of a city in one go, or, or in, the, in the recent ones, 27 kilometers. So for us, sometimes the end of the project is the drawing. So for, I guess, certain practices, you know, when they build a lot, the final, uh, the end product is the physical built building. For us, we know that it wouldn't, like the virtually Venice project, we know that there was no life beyond that. So the drawing became the, the artifact, or, and so the crafting of it, as you would craft a building, went into the crafting of the drawing. And that, for us, was really important. And then going, you, you talk about drawing and redrawing, I guess, earlier on. First, the redrawing of the, the, the narrative from Virtually Venice then was transpired into the London in Two Half Dimensions project. And so sometimes it goes, it works within one project, sometimes it goes across projects, which I think it happens with lots of ideas. And, you know, ideas are never sort of you start a project, you end with it. You always carry forward some, something. You know, we, we have this sort of baggage, I guess, which is quite normal. And you can, over time, probably, you can see the evolution of these ideas and techniques and methodologies. And like all research as well, you know, when I write sort of research bits and papers, you couldn't help but sort of bring in the, the bits that failed miserably in the last round of getting money and you just had to try to put it in again. So the things that, you know, there's a tendency, I guess, of economy as well. So it's not all, you know, original idea on every single project, but it's a whole evolution and development of, a, of key ideas and key techniques. We have time for one more question. Um, I'd like to ask a question about the um, urban architecture, or sorry, urban ag agriculture, which you um, spoke about right at the start of the lecture. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, where you, I suppose, took some inspiration from and where perhaps you see cities at a large scale actually taking that on board and starting because it seems to me to, to, to embed urban, uh, um, urban agriculture, because it seems to me the other, I see so much of the other way down where we're actually plowing up our, our fertile land and, and, and not actually having very, very sustainable food sources and so on. And I think the ideas are very powerful. I just wondered um, how you take the, the wonderful theory and actually turn it into large-scale practice. I think the urban agriculture could be taken literally, but also metaphorically. Um, I think literally, for many cities, it's true that, as I said, we import a lot of food. And um, when the ash cloud happened a few years back in, in England, you know, there was a threat that all our shelves will be empty. And I wish the ash cloud went on for a little bit longer, then maybe, you know, urban agriculture would manifest itself in cities much faster than one could imagine, you know. But I think there's a huge interest in it. And there must be the political view from the city to release a lot of these cities back for the communities. 
We have waiting lists for allotments, urban allotments, for six years for a little piece of wretched land, you know, whereas there's wadges of land growing grass in the city with fence, barbed wire fence over it. And, and I think that's really, really tragic. In cities like Accra in Ghana, for example, you know, it's a really important source of income for the women community out there. And that's how they sustain, uh, you know, they can afford to live in cities. You know, urban agriculture becomes the part-time world to, to, to bring in food for the family or to sell them in the market. And I think uh, on all sorts of different reasons, I think one should encourage our local council or our city to release more land for these sort of activities. It's better than just leaving it to grow grass. I know Australian grass is very beautiful, but, uh, you know, but still, I think there are other ways of treating land. And also the other thing is that a lot of our land are very toxic. I'm sure that parts of Melbourne has been contaminated as well. So it would be good that we collectively start to engage in what, how we can actually save our earth and how we should treat it. Not just, you know, if it's toxic, we shouldn't plant on it. But the things that we should know that is toxic rather than, you know, to be told later on, uh, much later on. And we cannot have this sort of exploitation going on forever. And I think maybe our urban culture is one of many vehicles that could engage for the communities to engage in this sort of conversation. I think the other thing with food I find also really interesting is for cities as diverse as Melbourne or London or Paris or New York, food is a good medium to engage in cultural understanding, to engage across language and borders and whatnot. And, uh, and I think, you know, because we all enjoy food, we all eat, and I think it's much better than, you know, governments, for example, in the UK, they spend millions sort of trying to encourage groups to talk when they don't really talk. And I think this could be a good vehicle too to really get everybody talking. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there's uh, plenty of food for thought in, uh, in all of that. You have great restaurants, by the way, in Melbourne. Uh, if you are inspired to do some crocheting, some knitting, some thinking about the future of cities, opening up through drawing and drawing practices new ways to try and imagine what our cities might feel like, what kinds of sensations they might uh, release to us, then there, are, there is a design charrette uh, coming up. You can enrol to join that, if you like, with CJ Lim. It'll be on the 8th and 9th of September. The details are on the RMIT Short Courses website and also on the ISSS uh, website. There, there are some brochures available in the, um, in the foyer. But would you please now join me in thanking Professor CJ Lee.